You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Dr. Anthony Fauci joins the Post to discuss the growing number of coronavirus cases in the U.S., efforts to slow the spread of the infection, and the challenges of distributing a vaccine once it's approved. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robert Costa. Today on our Path Forward series, which focuses on the pandemic, I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, as you all know, is leading the nation's fight against the coronavirus. He is director of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. He has advised presidents for decades, including President Trump, and he has been praised by President-elect Biden. Dr. Fauci, welcome back. Thank you, Bob. It's good to be with you. Dr. Fauci, we have some questions from our audience members. We will get to them in a moment. But first, it's Thanksgiving week. Any last-minute messages for Americans who are still undecided on traveling? Yes, Bob, thank you. Um, I mean, obviously, each individual family has to make, as I've said uh, recently over the past few days, a risk-benefit assessment about the risk you're willing to take uh, in traveling and in congregating in the usual warm atmosphere of, you know, 10, 15, 20 people at a home dinner. Although those are wonderful parts of our tradition, I just would like to have each family to kind of make that risk assessment and know and understand that we're in a very difficult situation where the rate of infection, the slope of infections are really very, very steep. So you might want to reconsider travel plans and certainly try as best as you can to keep congregate meetings indoors, as innocent and wonderful as they sound, to a minimal number of people, preferably just members of a household. Uh, I know this is a difficult thing to do, but we're in a very difficult situation. So better be careful now and look forward to many, many more in the future than either endangering yourself or a vulnerable member of your family or friends or what have you to the situation that we're in right now, which is unprecedented, but it will end. So this is a very fixed period of time. I know it's a very, very um, precious period of time, the holiday season when we get together, but please don't do something that in fact would put you or your family in danger, such as getting a crowded group of people coming from different places and airports or what have you. Dr. Fauci, millions of Americans, however, might not heed your advice. They might still travel. So if an American is traveling this week, what should they do to prevent the spread of the virus? Well, Barb, it's the simple things that we keep talking about over and over again that are not very difficult to implement and just varies a little bit in the circumstance you're in. Uniform wearing of masks, particularly when you're indoors, avoiding congregate settings, congregate situations, crowds, where you're in a situation where you can't avoid, you know, you it's very difficult. If you are in that situation, always wear a mask particularly indoors. Do things um, outdoors, preferentially over indoors. I know this can be difficult given the constraints with the weather that we have and washing your hands frequency. So masks, space, crowds, 
outdoors, wash your hands. If you did those simple things, you would diminish considerably the likelihood that you would get infected. And we know that that is a public health fact because we've seen situations where one state versus another, one city versus another, in comparable circumstances, has either implemented these mitigation um, uh, uh, procedures or have not. And the differences in infection rate are considerable. So we know it works. So we're asking people over this Thanksgiving holiday and beyond, because as we get into the colder weather of the winter, to do those simple mitigation actions. Dr. Fauci, those mitigation actions certainly apply to things like a train station or an airport. But if you're with a small group, a few family members inside a home or an apartment, should you be social distancing inside the home? And should you be wearing a mask inside the home? Well, the, the answer is you've got to use some common sense in the situation that you're in. And I think when most people are asking, you're in the home, the safest thing you can do is to confine the activities in your own home with the immediate occupants of that home. If you have a situation where you, you, you have to, given the social situation, bring in people who in fact are not members of the immediate household, try to ascertain whether or not they have been actually practicing the same sort of safe procedures that you. Have they created their own bubble? Have they avoided the types of contact that put them at risk? If they do, or if they are in your home, you should wear a mask indoor as much as you possibly can. Now, obviously, common sense, you're sitting at a table, particularly over the next couple of days when you're dealing with the Thanksgiving holiday, you can't have a mask on as you're eating and drinking. But in other areas, at other times when you're in the house, if you have people in your home that are not members of the immediate household and you're not really sure as to their level of exposure, then to the extent possible, you should wear the mask indoors with the obvious exception of when you're eating or drinking. And I think people need to remember that the kinds of infections, Bob, that we're seeing now are infections in the, in the exact setting that you're talking about. A dinner, a social gathering, five, 10, 15 people, seemingly innocently and inadvertently getting together, enjoying themselves. But what we're seeing, given the fact that people who are asymptomatic, namely without symptoms, who can come into that sort of setting and inadvertently and innocently infecting people because you're indoors, you're not wearing a mask, you don't have the kind of ventilation and moving of air that you have on the outside. And we are actually seeing in reality, not, not hypothetically, but in reality, we're starting to see a considerable number of instances of cases where you have that same sort of innocent family and friends gathering indoors that are turning into places where the virus is spread. So to the extent possible, as difficult it is from a social standpoint to avoid that, please try to avoid that and constrain the kinds of things you do to the immediate family and people that you're sure that they're being careful. 
Dr. Fauci, are there ways to be vigilant even in small settings? You said people could be asymptomatic, but are there any telltale signs or minor symptoms people should be on the lookout for this week? Well, yes. I mean, obviously, the early symptoms of COVID-19 disease are very similar to a flu-like syndrome. You may or may not have fever, and I don't think you need to rely on fever that if you don't have a fever, you're okay, because plenty of people in the very early period of time don't have fever. But it's something like a sore throat, um, kind of a, a scratchy feeling, maybe some fullness in your upper airway, some muscle aches, a feeling of fatigue. And then many people now have this curious loss of smell and taste. So if any of those symptoms appear, people should be careful and either stay home, try to get tested if you possibly can to know whether or not you're infected. And if you are, obviously, you should isolate yourself. If you get into some difficulty, you should notify your physician. But the best thing to do is stay home. So if someone comes in and says, you know, I kind of feel bush today. I'm tired. I got this little scratchy feeling in my throat. I feel a little achy. That's a telltale sign. Here is a question from one of our audience members, Kathleen Fouth of Illinois. She wonders, can someone who is tested positive and recovered two months ago spread the virus to others if they are exposed to it again? So, uh, you know, that's kind of a mixed question. If, you're, if, you're, if you were infected once and you've tested positive and a couple of months later there have been instances unusual of reinfection. But if you're two months out, even though some of the really sensitive tests indicate a degree of positivity, if you're that far out, it's extraordinarily unlikely that you are, that you are infectious. Very likely that you are not, because what you have periods of time are fragments of the virus that are not infectious, that the very sensitive tests can pick up. So the general rule is if you're 10 days from the onset of symptoms, you're in good shape. You want to get tested, you can get tested. And if you have availability of testing, you know, the, the, the original recommendation was to test 24 hours apart. But we're finding that people from 10 days from the onset of symptoms, if your symptoms persist, it is conceivable that you might still be, so you gotta be careful. You don't wanna be out there if you're still symptomatic. That's when you should stay home. One other question about Thanksgiving. With so many Americans still choosing to travel, we've seen over 250,000 Americans already die from this pandemic. How could this escalation in travel for Thanksgiving affect the number of cases and the death toll moving forward? Well, that's a very important question, Bob, and that's one of the things that we're really concerned about. If you look at the curves, we are in a very steep escalation of cases right now in the mid-fall season. If you look at the slope of the increases in the early spring that we had the northeastern part of the country dominated by the New York City metropolitan area, then we had the late, the early summer, midsummer, when we were trying to open up the country and the South dominated it. Now what we're seeing, the almost the entire map 
of the country is lighting up with the dark colors, which indicate increased test positivity. And the slope is like that, which means that if in fact you're in a situation when you do the things that are increasing the risk, the travel, the congregate setting, not wearing masks, the chances are that you will see a surge superimposed upon a surge. And you're not going to see the results of that because things lagged by a couple of weeks. So what we're seeing now is what happened two plus weeks ago. What we're doing now is going to be reflected two, three weeks from now. So what we want to make sure we don't do is as we enter into the more risky part of the year, weather gets colder, more people stay indoor, that you don't exactly exacerbate the problem that already exists. And the reason I think it's important, doubly sure of that, is that help is on the way. We have at least two highly efficacious vaccines that would likely start be given to people at the highest risk and the highest priority towards the middle and end of December. As we get into the subsequent months, more and more people will be able to be vaccinated. So I take this not only as good news in and of itself because of the benefit of adding the vaccine to your toolkit of prevention, but it should be, in my mind, an incentive for people, despite the fact that we all have COVID fatigue, an incentive to double down and be even more conscientious about the public health measures that I've asked. Because if help is on the way, you wanna hang in there, not get infected, not infect your loved ones, because there is help that is close by and it'll be getting better and better as the months go by. So that's the message. If you possibly can, please hang in there with public health measures. That is the carrot of the message. But what about the stick here? You mentioned a surge upon a surge. You also have access to the modeling. Can you be blunt, Dr. Fauci? What does a surge upon a surge actually look like in the United States? Well, Bob, if you look at the surge that we're in right now, you're talking about you know, 200,000 new cases a day. We've been over 100,000 a day for the last 20 days, I believe. You know, about an average of between high 1,000, close to 2,000 deaths, 80,000 plus hospitalizations. If you look at the number of cases that go from 10 million to 11 to now we're at 12 million, and you look at the number of deaths and you count the days between now and the end of the year, you know, we're now at over 250,000 deaths, a quarter of a million deaths. You know, you could get well over 300,000 and close to even more than that if we don't turn things around. In the same breath, I say that, Bob. I want people to realize, I don't want this to be a doomsday statement. It is within our power to not let those numbers happen. So just because you hear numbers from the models and you wanted concrete numbers, I gave them to you, the fact is you don't have to accept those numbers as being inevitable. There are things you can do about it. I showed you the curve has that steepness. You can do that to the curve. We know that those things work when you compare those who've done it 
with those who have not. So the numbers can be stark, they can be sobering, in many respects they can be frightening, but we have the tools to prevent that from happening. It's literally within our power to do that. Dr. Fauci, what is herd immunity and when do you expect the United States to get there? Well, herd immunity, you know, sometimes the, the, the terminologies we use con, con, confuse people. What herd immunity means is that when you get a certain percentage of the population that is protected against infection, either by natural infection, and we're not even close to herd immunity now, as proven by the fact that we have had spikes in areas that had previous spikes. So the previous spike didn't prevent them from the subsequent spike. So herd immunity is when you get a large proportion of the population that's protected, which means those who are vulnerable and not, either the vaccine doesn't work in them, they have a bigger susceptibility to getting adverse effects of an indeleterious consequence of the infection. The fact that you have so many people that are protected, the virus, if you want to use a metaphor, has no place to go. It's looking for vulnerable people, and most of the population is protected. That's how viruses die out. That's how we smashed measles. That's how we smashed polio. That's how we smashed smallpox. So that's the reason why you have an efficacious vaccine. You want to get as many people protected so that it's almost like if you have a herd of strong animals, you see it in the movies about going into Africa and the beautiful scenery you see about herds of wildebeest or what have you, you have the herd that's really strong. You have some weak ones in there. So when someone, maybe the metaphorical lions trying to get in there and take care of the weak ones, the strength of the herd protects the vulnerable ones. That's what you mean by herd immunity. So it's a question of two components, an efficacious vaccine and getting as many people vaccinated as you possibly can. Those two combinations together, those two ingredients could protect everyone, which gets to another important question that people keep asking. We've got to make sure we engage the community to realize that the decision about the safety and the efficacy of a vaccine and the speed with which we did it. The speed was based on very exquisite scientific advances and an enormous amount of resources that were put into Operation Warp Speed to make this happen. There was no compromise of safety, nor was there compromise of scientific integrity. Now, we've got to get the Dr. people to realize yeah. The decision. Go ahead. Let me just finish. I didn't mean to interrupt. The decision to say that this vaccine is safe and effective, the data were analyzed by a completely independent board, the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, which in fact doesn't have to answer to the administration, doesn't have to answer to the company. They're independent. They look at the data and they've said in both of those vaccines, both the Moderna and the, uh, and the Pfizer, that it is efficacious and it's safe and it protects you even against 
serious disease. Those data then get analyzed by career scientists at the FDA in association with an advisory committee that again is independent. When that decision is made, all of the data is gonna be seen by scientists like myself and my colleagues. So the process is independent and it's transparent. So I know there's been a lot of mixed messages that maybe have come out, but one needs to appreciate that this is a solid process. So when they say that the vaccine is safe and effective, if we wanna protect the individual and all of our society, we should take the vaccine. And I can tell you when my turn comes up and the FDA says that this is safe and effective, I myself will get vaccinated and I will recommend that my family gets vaccinated. Dr. Fauci, you just outlined why you believe the process is independent and valid and should be trusted. Do you then approve of the efforts by states like New York and California to review the vaccines for safety and efficacy on their own? Are those efforts necessary? Well, I can understand, though I don't agree with their doing that, because I think what they have heard uh, unfortunately, what I had referred to a moment ago as mixed messages uh, from Washington. So, I mean, I, I don't fault them for, for wondering what's going on, but I can tell them if they're listening, and I hope they are, that the process really is a sound process. One of the difficulties about taking that approach is that it then maybe sheds some doubt on the process that I'm extolling now as being a firm process. So I understand why they may want to do it because of the mixed messages, but hopefully I can appeal to them to say, yes, you can look at the data, but, but everybody should be looking at the data. There's nothing wrong with that. But trust the process because it's a sound process. Beyond sending mixed messages, could those reviews by states also delay Americans from having access to a vaccine? Well, I hope not. I mean, I understand, like I mentioned, I understand what the governors in question, why they want to do that, even though I disagree with it. I would hope that if they do that, they do it in an expeditious manner that doesn't delay anything. You've mentioned the two vaccines. What about the news on AstraZeneca? What's your response to their report on Monday about an effective vaccine? Well, you know, the data from what I've seen, remember, this is press release. So I, I am going to be briefed uh, no later than tomorrow morning by the company. I was going to try and squeeze it in today, but today has been a, a very, very busy day, but no later than tomorrow morning. The data, when someone says that in at least one component of the trial, it was a little bit confusing about the doses and we can get into that, but it might be too, a little bit too granular for our discussion today. But to have a 90% uh, efficacy in one of the components, namely one dose range of the components, which was a half a dose first followed by a full dose, that's good news. What that tells us now, that this is the third vaccine that we have that have given a very high degree of efficacy, which bodes well for vaccinology in general in the context of COVID-19, but also for the fact of something that I spoke, I believe to you, Bob, 
in one of our previous interviews that we would like to have multiple candidates that are highly efficacious so that these companies could start pumping out vaccine doses, not only for the United States, but for the entire world. That would really be a very positive thing. You have a good memory. That's exactly right, Dr. Fauci. I'd like to come back to the science of this virus. What are the long-term side effects? Are you learning anything new? Well, when you're talking about long-term side effects, Bob, that will be remain to be seen as we follow these individuals because many of the protocols are two-year protocols, and then the FDA and the companies have processes where they could look long-term. Let me explain to the public who's listening to our conversations. There's immediate, there's intermediate, and there's long-term adverse events. So the immediate ones, almost invariably, are a little discomfort in the arm, a little swelling, maybe a little ache, fever for, for 24 hours, and it's gone. The intermediate may be you know, a few days later where you get a reaction the way has happened with other vaccines years and years ago when there was Guillain-Barre associated with the pandemic flu vaccine. We haven't seen any of those serious adverse events that we'd be worried about. When you talk about longer range, if you look at the history of vaccines, uh, more than 90%, closer to 95% of the longer range effects occur somewhere between 30 and 45 days something like that, maybe give or take a few days to get it correctly. That's the reason why the FDA appropriately said, we don't want to think in terms of an EUA, an emergency use authorization, until we get 60 days beyond when 50% of the people in the trial have gotten their last dose. So that may seem a little you know, strange to people, but the fact is that is a very prudent way to rule out any overwhelming majority of any serious effects. They're still gonna be looking a year and two later, but the bulk of things that might happen have already been looked at by that 60 day wait before you allow the EUA to actually be issued so that people will get the vaccine. Safety is primary and the FDA the, the career scientists who've been doing this in their entire career for vaccine after vaccine know what they're doing, and that's why they made that safety clause in the EUA. Dr. Fauci, can you walk through the accuracy of current tests? People are wondering this week what to do, which test to take. Yeah, you know, there are a number of tests, you know, three general types, tests for the actual vac virus itself. It's a PCR, it's a molecular test. Test for a component of the virus, which is an anti antigen test, and test for the antibody to see if you've actually been infected and exposed. If you wanna find out if a person absolutely is infected or not, you, for example, if you're doing identification, isolation, contact tracing, someone comes in with symptoms, you wanna know if they're infected and you wanna know if the people that they've come in contact with is infected. Those are highly sensitive and highly specific and they are more expensive. They take a little bit longer to get the results. You'd like to get it 
in one to two days. Many people, unfortunately, still have to wait multiple days to get it, even though we're doing much better now than we were doing months and months ago. The other one is one that's an antigen test that is generally done for screening. So it isn't as sensitive, but if you repeat it over and over again, it makes up for the lack of sensitivity. So if you wanna find out in general, in a college, what is the level of infection of people? You, you, you test them all and then you do surveillance testing. You don't wanna know whether this person or that person or that person is infected. You just wanna find out if there's infection in the group. The group could be a college, a nursing home, a school, a factory or what have you. Those are mostly surveillance tests. So if somebody wants to know absolutely if they're infected for mm -hmm. a particular time, they should go with the more sensitive PCR test that may take a little bit longer. If you wanna find out if a group is infected or not and you wanna do surveillance, that's when you do something that's less sensitive, but if you do it often enough, it makes up for that. Dr. Foucher, we only have a minute or so left. You've just mentioned the long-term uh, effects possibly of a vaccine, but what about of contracting the virus itself? Are there brain issues, other health issues that you've picked up? Well, well, there, there are two aspects of that, Bob, a great, a great question. For those people who really get seriously ill, namely they're in an ICU intubated on ventilation, even if it isn't COVID-19, anyone that goes through that is not gonna feel perfectly normal for a considerable period of time. But there's something else that's going on with COVID-19. And those are individuals who don't necessarily have had advanced disease. They could have been in the hospital, they could have been home in bed for a few weeks, but they had symptomatic disease. What we're finding is that a certain percentage of them, and we don't know what that is yet because we're doing a larger cohort study. So we are going to be studying this. Anywhere from 25, maybe 30%, we think, have what's called a post-COVID syndrome. Namely, they no longer have virus in them. They can't infect anybody, but it takes them anywhere from weeks to months and maybe even beyond to feel perfectly normal. And they have a constellation of symptoms and signs that seem to be consistent when you talk to different people. It's extreme fatigue, it's shortness of breath, even among people who are athletes and were really very well conditioned, have trouble going up a flight of stairs. They have temperature control problems, they feel chilly, they feel warm, they have sleep disturbances, and some of them describe what's called brain fog, which is not a particularly appropriate term, but what they really mean by that is that they have difficulty focusing or concentrating. So there are these effects that we're concerned about. We're also gonna be doing imaging studies to make sure mm -hmm. there's not residual inflammation in places like in the heart or in the central nervous system or things like that. So we're learning that once you get rid of the virus in a certain proportion of people, they still cannot necessarily feel normal for variable periods of time. And we're gonna be investigating that. Dr. Fauci, in just a few seconds, one more question. Have you spoken to President-elect Biden since Election Day? No, I have not. I have not. 
Dr. Fauci, really appreciate you taking the time this afternoon to walk through where everything stands with this pandemic and to offer some some insights and, to, and for people as they head home or perhaps take your advice and stay at their, their residence and, and don't go home for Thanksgiving. Dr. Fauci, thanks again. Thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you. Appreciate you. And thank you all, too, for joining us here at Washington Post Live. This interview is available at Washington Post Live, as well as, we're excited to say, LinkedIn now, and a streaming service, viewit.com, that's V-U-I-T.com. If you missed any of these interviews, whether it was President Obama earlier today at Washington Post Live, or Dr. Fauci just now, you can go to our website, WashingtonPostLive.com, but also LinkedIn and view it. We're moving across those platforms, and you can access Washington Post Live there now and in the future. And next week, we'll have a full slate of, of guests here at Washington Post Live, good conversations, including Paul Romer, a Nobel Prize winner, and Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. But for now, please enjoy the holiday this week and stay safe. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.